God in heaven, our shield and defender, the lifter of our heads. Oh God, You protect us, You provide for us, You serve us, You sustain us. Lord, we know Moses longed to see Your glory. And now in Jesus Christ, we do behold Your glory, the glory of the one and only God. Show us the glory of Jesus today, O Father. Show us His glory in the Word and at the table and in one another that we might reflect His glory and shine His glory into the world. O Sovereign Father, Lord of all, You are gracious, You are wise, You are full of love. It is always Your property to have mercy on those who cry out to You. You are worthy of all honor, praise, and adoration with Your Son and with the Holy Spirit. Bless us that we might bless You. Bless us that we might be a blessing to the world all around us. This we pray in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the power of Your Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray together. Father, we do ask that You would reveal the Lord Jesus Christ to us. Father, not because we are wise, not because we deserve it, but because You are merciful. Help us to find rest in Jesus Christ, to rest in Him as King of kings and Lord of lords, as our Savior, as our Redeemer. This we pray in His name. Amen. Five hundred years ago, this October, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And so this is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation this year. It's an event in history truly worth celebrating. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Martin Bootser, and a host of other reformers are rightly regarded as heroes of the faith. It's important for us to know who they are, to know their stories, to know their beliefs. What convictions drove them? How did God use them? What did they teach and what did they do? The Great Reformation could really be called the Great Recovery because in so many ways that's what it was. It was all about recovering and rediscovering and reclaiming great biblical truths that had been lost or compromised, great biblical truths that the people of God need to know for their salvation, for their comfort, for effective and faithful living as citizens of God's kingdom. One of the great truths taught in Scripture that had actually been taught by many of the great theologians in the early and uh, medieval church, like Augustine, uh, one of these great truths that had been uh, lost in many ways by the time of the Reformation, that, that was then rediscovered by the Reformers, is the doctrine of the absolute sovereignty of God. God's absolute sovereignty. In fact, this teaching on God's sovereignty was so central to virtually all of the Reformers that Reformed theology has become synonymous with believing in God's sovereignty. There's actually a lot more to the Reformed faith than just God's sovereignty, but the Reformed faith has become virtually synonymous with this belief in the sovereignty of God. The Reformers certainly had their differences in a lot of areas and on various theological issues, but here they were all united. Here they contended as one man for the faith and for the truth of God. They were united in teaching God's sovereignty, including God's sovereignty in salvation. Of course, God's sovereignty is most associated with John Calvin, 
And the term Calvinism has actually come to be used as a label for those who believe in God's sovereignty, even though, again, there's really much more to Calvinism than just believing in God's sovereignty. But it wasn't just John Calvin among the Reformers. This was a prominent theme for virtually all of the Reformers uh, to teach on from God's Word. It was certainly uh, there for Luther. Uh, in fact, one of Luther's greatest works was written in response to one of the great scholars of the day, Erasmus. Uh, it's a book that became known that was titled The Bondage of the Will. And it is a defense by Luther of God's absolute sovereignty in salvation, that man is in bondage to sin since the fall, and God has mercy on whom he will. He, he shows mercy to whom he will, and he hardens whom he will harden. And Luther spells this out from Romans 9, as we read this morning in other passages, and says to Erasmus, Erasmus, your thoughts of God are too human. You must look at God the way the Scriptures present us to Him as the sovereign King over all, as a God who is sovereign in mercy, sovereign in salvation. Now, I know a lot of you are already familiar with this truth of God's sovereignty. Predestination, five points of Calvinism, and providence, these are all familiar to you, and that's wonderful. Uh, I know for some of you, when you became a Calvinist, it was almost like a second conversion experience, because coming to understand the sovereignty of God really does reorient your worldview at the deepest level. For others of you, this may be new, and, and I want you to understand, you don't have to agree with every single thing, you don't have to have answers to every single question that might be raised, it's okay. This is one of those things over which certainly Christians have differed. But I hope by the time we come to the end of this this morning, you will see the beauty and the wonder of God's sovereignty and how useful this doctrine is in our lives as Christians every day. What do we mean by the sovereignty of God? What did the Reformers mean by the sovereignty of God? Even though this teaching has been controversial at times in church history, it is, quite frankly, very easy to find in the Scriptures. And so the best thing to do is to turn to the Word. And I just want to give you some passages here with a little bit of commentary. We'll sort of play Bible hopscotch, and I'm just going to jump from one passage to the next. Just passages where this truth is clearly taught. So in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, God says through His prophet, God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. For I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I shall do all my pleasure. In effect, God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, this is what it means for God to be God. It means God is sovereign. This is who God is. He's the sovereign Lord. He says, my plans come to pass. My purpose will stand. You and I can't say that. A lot of our plans fail. A lot of our purposes get thwarted. You get frustrated because you're not sovereign. You don't always get your way. God does not get frustrated. He doesn't have that problem. God is God because He's sovereign. And because He's sovereign, He's happy. And so God never has a crisis. God never gets surprised by something. God is never caught off guard. That's Isaiah 46. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does as He pleases. This is a great definition of God's sovereignty. It means God rules His creation. God is in heaven, reigning over all. He does with His creation. And He acts in His creation as He pleases. He controls everything in heaven and earth, 
as He pleases. Daniel chapter 4. We find Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, converting to the worship of the true God and confessing this truth. This is what it meant for Nebuchadnezzar to become a God-fearer, a worshiper of the God of Daniel. He came to see that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is sovereign. Here he was, this arrogant pagan emperor, taking credit for all his great accomplishments, building a statue to himself that he might be worshipped. But God humbled him. God dehumanized him for a season, making him bestial. But when he finally returned to his senses, he recognized the true God, and this is what he said. I bless the Most High and praise and honor Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does according to His will with the army of heaven and among the peoples of the earth. No one can restrain His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Nebuchadnezzar says to those who would question God's ways and God's actions, shut up. You can't do that. You can't say to God, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar confesses the absolute sovereignty of God. He confesses God rules over all of history and all of creation. All the actions of men and all the actions of angels are under His control. The rising and falling of nations, it all happens according to His plan. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, in, in confessing this, recognizes, recognizes his own authority and his own empire are under God and exist only at God's good pleasure. He recognizes God is God, which means God is sovereign. Further, God's sovereignty means there's no such thing as chance or fortune or luck in God's world. Proverbs 16.33 says the lot is cast. This would be like rolling dice. The lot is cast, the die are rolled, but every decision is from the Lord. In other words, every time the lot would be cast, the Lord controls the outcome. Every time the dice are rolled in Vegas, it's under God's control. No, nothing happens by mere chance. It's always part of God's plan. Or take Proverbs 19.21. The wisdom literature is full of confessions of God's sovereignty. Because to be wise, you must humble yourself before God. You must fear God. You must see that God is sovereign. Proverbs 19.21 says, A man plans his way, but the counsel of the Lord comes to pass. This is wisdom to see this. To recognize that somehow the free actions of men are actually predetermined by God. Yes, we cause things in the creation. We plan things in the creation. But God is the ultimate cause of everything. It's His plan that always comes to pass. So the free actions of men are predetermined by God and used by God to fulfill His plans. Our plans don't always come to pass. God's plans always do come to pass. And that's why in James 4, and James can almost be understood as a commentary on the Bible's wisdom literature, in James 4, James writes, don't say tomorrow we will go and do thus and such because you don't know what will happen tomorrow. Your life is a vapor. And that goes Ecclesiastes. Your life is vaporous. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills it, we shall live and do this or that. In other words, James says, this is wisdom and this is humility. Don't boast in your plans because they may not come to fruition. Don't boast in your plans because God is sovereign. He's in control. He's in control of every single event in history. Everything unfolds according to His eternal plan. 
And so whatever you intend to do, remind yourself it will only come to pass if God wills it. Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. When Paul speaks of the counsel of God's will, it's basically like saying this is God, God has a script. And this script is going to be acted out in history. God has a blueprint for everything that will come to pass. A design for history that goes right down to the details and will all be fulfilled from the greatest events to the smallest events. From the largest star to the smallest subatomic particle. It's all under God's control. It's all under God's sovereignty. And so nothing happens. Nothing happens apart from God's working according to His counsel. No matter what happens, everything is always going according to God's plan. Even those things that that seem to be contradictory to God's will and to God's goodness happen according to the counsel of His will. That's what Paul teaches here. Which means we must trust that God has a good plan for including those things in His world that are evil, that are wicked, that are dark. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like a river channel, he directs it where he wills. So it doesn't matter if it's Barack Obama or Donald Trump or Kim Jong-un. God is in charge of the rulers of the earth and He directs them. He directs their actions as He wishes. He rules the rulers. He's sovereign over the heart of the king. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord made everything for Himself, even the wicked, for the day of wrath. Again, we see here, everything serves God's ends. Everything serves God's purposes. He even uses wicked men and their wickedness as part of His plan. Even the wicked will serve God's purposes. And of course, He does so. He uses the wicked and their wickedness without sinning Himself as uh, one of the reformers said, God uses sin sinlessly. I think we have a great illustration of this in the Joseph story. We read a little snippet of it, a little fragment of the Joseph story in the book of Genesis. And I think it very clearly makes this point. Joseph's brothers had sinned against him. They had sold him into slavery wrongfully and then lied about it to cover it up. But through a strange twist of events, Joseph ends up in charge of Egypt as Pharaoh's right-hand man. And as it turns out, he ends up serving his family and saving his family during a time of famine. And when he finally reveals himself to his brothers, he says, you sent me, he says, you sold me into slavery, but God sent me here to save many lives. You sold me into slavery. You did a wicked thing. But God was behind it all, sending me here that many people in the end might be saved. He says in Genesis 50, what you intended for evil, God used for good. Joseph's brothers and God were involved in the same action of selling Joseph into slavery and everything that happened downstream from that. They meant it for evil. They did it in an evil way. God did it for a good purpose and used it for good. God ordained all of it, all of these events in Joseph's life, including all the ways he was sinned against so that many people might be saved. God had a good purpose in the evil He included in the life of Joseph. And in fact, one thing I think that's interesting is 
Joseph, knowing that what happened to him was part of God's grand plan and design for his life, knowing that, that, that God's plan in the midst of all these bad things that happened to Joseph was good, enabled Joseph to forgive his brothers. It's easier to forgive people who sin against you if you recognize that their sin against you is part of God's plan for your life and it's going to be used by God for your good. I think the Job story furthers this point. Uh, this, this point about God using sin for good in His plan, including sin in His good plan. We know from the opening chapters of the story that Satan is really behind Job's misery. Job comes, uh, Satan comes to God and and, and basically a, a kind of deal is struck where Job is going to be able to inflict all kinds of misery on Job. And so in the opening of the story, we find the Sabaeans come and steal Job's oxen. His flocks are destroyed by fire. The Chaldeans slaughter his servants. A tornado takes out his children. And Satan himself strikes Job with a painful skin disease with boils all over his skin. And yet when Job, who is called a righteous man, when Job speaks, he attributes all of it, not to the Sabaeans or Chaldeans or wind or fire, not even to Satan, but he goes to the ultimate cause of it all. He attributes all of it to God. He says, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because Job knows God is sovereign, he can find comfort in the midst of his pain. He says, shall we not accept good, shall we accept good from God and not evil? He knows behind Satan's work and behind all of these calamities, all of these disasters, is the sovereign hand of God. And of course, that is our only comfort. If God's not behind it, there would be no way to have comfort in the midst of these disasters. There'd be no guarantee that good will come out of them. The supreme example of God including human evil in His righteous plan and using it for good is, of course, the crucifixion. The most evil event in history. The cross was the greatest act of human injustice and wickedness imaginable, and yet God planned it down to the details. The very details were foretold in prophecy and then are fulfilled when Jesus is actually nailed to the cross. God planned it all. He planned to work through the actions of the Pharisees and Pilate and Judas and the Roman soldiers to bring about His plan, His plan of salvation. And so when Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2, he says that this Jesus, he's, he's speaking to the very people who crucified Jesus. He says this Jesus was delivered to you by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God and you have by lawless hands crucified. He says you acted wickedly. You acted wickedly in crucifying Jesus, but when you did so, you were unwittingly fulfilling God's purpose and God's plan of salvation. See, the cross fulfilled all these prophecies. It fulfilled ultimately God's plan of salvation. It was all foreordained by God. Does it cancel out their wickedness? What they did was really wicked. They're responsible for their wickedness. But it also was used by God for the good of His people to bring about salvation. And of course, all of this helps us understand perhaps the most famous passage concerning God's sovereignty in all of Scripture, Romans 8.28. It would be great to look at it in its wider context, especially as it flows into Romans 9, but just one little snippet of it. God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. 
What does this promise mean? It means no matter how many bad things happen to you, God uses them for good. What a comfort this is. What a comfort God's sovereignty is. John Calvin says God governs the whole world for the sake of our salvation. The whole God rules over the whole cosmos for the sake of bringing good to us and bringing us to salvation. Matthew 10, Jesus gives the same kind of comfort, but in His typical way of using a really specific example, Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for one penny? And yet, not one of them falls to the ground apart from the will of your Father. So that the very hairs of your head are numbered. And so he says, do not fear, for you are a greater value than sparrows. Jesus' point is this. If God is paying attention to the sparrows, if He's overseeing the sparrows, if He's caring for them and providing for them, and He marks the life and the death of each little sparrow, each tiny little bird, how much more does He pay attention to you and oversee you? How much more does He in His providence care for you and provide for you? There's comfort in this, knowing that nothing happens apart from the will of our Heavenly Father. There are passages that describe God's control of different aspects of His creation. Passages that describe God's control of the weather. It's interesting, in the case of Job, Job's children were destroyed by the wind. They were killed by a tornado, apparently. And yet Job confesses in the book that God controls the wind. God controls the rain. Job 28 describes God's control of these weather events, which is especially interesting to think about in light of the recent storms we've seen hit our own country. God controls the weather. Isaiah 10 shows God controlling wars and raising up a king, sending him to actually punish his own people, but then punishing that king he has used as his instrument because he became arrogant. God controlling the movements of kings and their kingdoms. God controlling war. Amos 3 says if calamity comes upon a city, the Lord has done it. Amos 4 says God controls plagues. We could go on and on and on in Scripture after Scripture, page after page of the Bible. It's plain. The Lord has planned and controls everything that comes to pass. God is sovereign. And this is true when we talk about salvation as well. God is sovereign over salvation. He dispenses salvation. He works salvation. He gives salvation as He pleases. And He has freely chosen a people to save out of the mass of fallen humanity. A great multitude no man can number. Freely chosen by God. Freely chosen by the Father in the Son for salvation. And so Ephesians 1, Paul's writing to the Christians at Ephesus, the saints in Ephesus, and he says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, predestinating us to adoption as sons according to the good pleasure of His will. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, freely and unconditionally. God chose us and and united us to His Son. He predestined us. He predestined us for adoption, that we, at the right moment, would become sons of God through faith and through baptism and entrance into His church. Acts uh, chapter 13, verse 48 is really interesting. This is after Paul has preached in Antioch. Some believed and some didn't. And Luke, as the narrator of the book of Acts, says, as many as had been ordained to eternal life believed. 
when John Calvin starts his discussion of election in his institutes, this is really how he starts out, is with this empirical observation, this empirical fact that when the gospel is preached, some believe and some don't. You ever wonder why? Why do some believe the gospel when it's preached and others do not? Is it because those who believe are, are smarter or perhaps they're more moral than others? They were better off to start with? Well, no, Scripture's clear. We're all spiritually dead. We are all enslaved to sin and Satan. The reason some believe and others do not when the Gospel is preached is because those who are brought to faith, they were appointed by God to eternal life. And so God works faith in them through the hearing of the Word. It's the outworking of what the Reformers call unconditional election. God chose us based not on anything in the elect, in the chosen ones, including not based on foreseeing some decision we would make in the future. That would actually be a post-destination, not a predestination. That would make us God's electors rather than God's elect. No, God freely and unconditionally chose a people according to His good pleasure. And Jesus the Son died for those people, and the Holy Spirit works in them through the means of grace, through, the bab through baptism and the Word and the Lord's Supper to bring them to faith and to nurture their faith and to sustain them. God is absolutely sovereign. He's sovereign over history. He's sovereign over creation. He's sovereign over our individual lives. He's sovereign over salvation. But obviously, this is a teaching not without its difficulties. And that's why it's been controversial uh, at times in church history. Questions are raised. Good questions. Uh, right questions. People rightly ask, if this is true, what about free will? Does this make us robots? Or does this make us puppets with God pulling the strings? And we feel like we're free, but that's just an illusion. And further, if God is sovereign over all of our lives and all of our actions in this way, how can we be accountable for our actions if they're predestined, if God has predetermined what we're going to do? And what about the problem of evil? If God's plan includes the evils and the, and the calamities that happen in history, doesn't that make God the author of evil? Doesn't that make God responsible for evil? And what about God's sovereignty in salvation? If this means that God chooses who is saved and who isn't, how is that fair? How is that just? I'm not going to try to answer all those questions for you this morning. Sermons can't do that. Sermons can't answer all these questions. If you want to talk about it more come find me. There, there are a lot of great books to read. There are a lot of, uh, a lot of good conversations we can have about these things. But I, I do want to give you this. I think Scripture gives us a couple of analogies that are very, very helpful. See, we know we're on the right track because these questions I just raised about accountability and about evil and about the justice of God choosing some while passing by others, all of those questions are questions that Scripture itself raises, particularly Paul in Romans 9, raises these very questions, which means if we have those questions, it means the teaching we've been getting is on the right track because these are just the kind of questions that pop up when you teach what Scripture teaches about God's sovereignty. We read Romans 9 this morning. Romans 9-11 through 11 is really a, a key section in the book of Romans. It's really the fullest discussion we have of these issues in all of Scripture. And the point of, of, of these chapters is not to give us some kind of abstract discussion of God's sovereignty or a, a, a kind of systematic theology of election or something like that. 
It's really the next step in Paul's discussion in the letter of Romans. The real point in this chapter, Paul's just spelled out in the first eight chapters of Romans, this glorious salvation that God has accomplished through His promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. But then there's this little problem. And that is God's covenant people, the covenant nation, the Israelites, don't seem to believe Jesus is the Messiah. Most of them have rejected Jesus as Messiah. And so now Paul's got to wrestle with this. Does this mean that God's plan has somehow failed or that God has not been true to His promises? Does Israel's unbelief mean that God's promises and God's plans have not come to pass? How do we understand Israel's rejection of the Messiah? Well, actually, Paul shows us Israel's rejection of the Messiah in mass in his day was part of God's grand plan all along. And in the end, all Israel will be saved. God will prove His righteousness in the end. Indeed, I think what Paul's doing in Romans 9-11 through is showing that God's ultimate purpose is the formation of a new Israel. Not just a collection of saved individuals, but a new people, a new humanity who owe everything to God's grace, to God's sovereign election. And so in Romans 9, Paul tells the story of election. God's electing purposes working out in history. God choosing some for salvation, hardening others. And Paul shows us we can never have a claim on God's mercy. Really, the amazing thing is not that God chooses to save some and leave others in their sin, but that He chooses to save anyone at all. That's really the amazing thing, that God shows mercy to sinners. But in explaining how God shapes the histories and destinies of both individuals and nations in these chapters, Paul uses one key illustration drawn from the Old Testament that I think really helps us as we wrestle through the big questions that are raised here. Paul says in the midst of Romans 9, God is the potter and we are the clay. And he fashions each of us and he fashions each of our destinies as he wills for his own purposes. He makes some. Paul says, into vessels for honor and others into vessels of dishonor. Paul says he has mercy on whom he wills and he pardons whom he wills. Paul says that is the potter's right. The potter has power over the clay. The potter has the right to do with the clay as he wills. And in verse 20 of Romans 9, the clay tries to talk back to God. And, and the clay says, why does he still find fault? Why does God still find fault for who resists his will? Now that very question presupposes God's absolute sovereignty. It means we've been teaching the right thing if we get that question. And so the question is raised. How can God blame me for my sin? How can God hold me accountable for his sin when I was just fulfilling his purpose anyway? When God's the one who crafted this particular lump of clay this way. And Paul basically says, shut up. Be quiet. You can't talk that way. He says, indeed, oh man, who are you to talk back to God? He says, will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me thus? See, God is the potter and God has his prerogatives. And so if God wants to raise up a pharaoh so that he can manifest his power in destroying that same Pharaoh, God can do that. If he wants to harden the heart of Pharaoh, who of course is also hardening his own heart, God can do that. God formed Pharaoh into a vessel of wrath to make his power known. 
doesn't sit right with us. But that's what God has done. And we have to humble ourselves before God as the potter and the sculptor of the destinies of every nation and every individual. See, God's design as the potter is to put on a grand display of who He is. To make all different kinds of vessels to show His power and His wisdom as the potter. He wants to show off His mercy and salvation. And He does so in those He prepares for glory. And He wants to make His power known and His justice known in the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That is God's great purpose. Think back to Proverbs 16.4. Really kind of a one-verse summary of Paul's discussion there in Romans 9. God has made everything for His own ends, even the wicked for the day of wrath. Everything God does serves His purposes. Everything God does serves to display His glory, the awesome beauty and wonder and wisdom of who He is as a God who rules over all. A God who reigns, a God who saves, a God who destroys, a God who serves, a God who judges, a God who redeems. He is the potter and we are the clay. That's the first analogy. God has the right as the potter, as the creator, to form us for whatever purpose He desires. And it's God's purpose, it's God's desire to show Himself. Paul says, what if God desires to show Himself? Well, He does desire to show Himself so that we, the vessels of mercy He has prepared for glory, might bask in His glory, might behold His glory, might share in His glory the fullness of who He is. Now, it may not be a complete answer to every question that can be raised. And Paul knows that. We'll see that. But I think it's a helpful analogy for understanding God's sovereignty. But there's another analogy Scripture uses. It's not found in Romans 9, but found elsewhere that I think also helps us. It's in Psalm 139 in particular, where David, as the psalmist, is contemplating God as his creator, the God who fills all space with His presence. A, a God of love and a God of kindness and a God of wisdom. And in the midst of all of this, David says, in your book, he says to God, in your book were written all the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. David pictures God as an author having written a book. A book that contains the story of David's own life. David pictures his life as a story. And God's not merely a character inside the story. He's the storyteller. David says, I look at my life as a story, and I know behind every story is a storyteller. God is the author of my life story. And so David says, essentially, before I was even born, God wrote the story of my life, the plot of my life with all its twists and turns with all its ups and downs, and yes, the ending of the story as well. It was all scripted by the divine author ahead of time. He says, my life is a book. My life is a story authored by God. We tend to think of our lives in narrative form, don't we? You know, having a kind of plot to them, a kind of direction, a, a meaning, and a purpose. Well, that's because your life does have a narrative flow to it, and God is the author. God is the storyteller. God is the one who has written the script. And I think this analogy also helps us solve some of the apparent difficulties with this doctrine. If we're characters in God's story, think about the relationship of an author to his story. Just take a well-known story. I hope it's well-known. Take The Hobbit by Tolkien. 
Okay? Let's take one episode in that story. Why does Bilbo Baggins tell riddles to the dragon? When he meets the dragon in his lair, he speaks in riddles. Why does he do this? Well, certainly you can answer that question in different ways. You could say, well, Bilbo is a rather clever hobbit, and he enjoys a good riddle. And so it was his choice to tell riddles because it's an aspect of his personality. It was his free choice to tell riddles because that's who he is. He's a hobbit who likes to speak in riddles. Ooh, that's one way to answer the question perfectly legitimate in terms of the story. But you can answer that question another way. You could say Bilbo told riddles because Tolkien, as the author of the story, as the creator of Bilbo and the one who has written his story, predestined Bilbo to tell riddles when he met the dragon. Tolkien ordained for him to tell riddles. Tolkien wrote the story that way. And that's why Bilbo tells riddles. And you know, that answer is true too because Bilbo doesn't exist. Middle Earth doesn't exist apart from Tolkien. Tolkien created Middle Earth. He created Bilbo Baggins. He ordained and predestines everything that happens there in that world. Both of those answers are true. You can answer in terms of Bilbo's free will and his personality, his choice, his preferences, or you can answer in terms of the author's purposes and intentions, his grand design for the story. Both are true. That's what theologians and philosophers call compatibilism, this notion that our choices are both freely made according to our preferences and predetermined by God as part of His plan. And even if we can't fully explain how both are true, they are. Another word that's sometimes used for this is concurrence. Concurrence says God is the ultimate cause of everything, but there are real secondary causes, creaturely causes, causes within the creation. And so God and the creature can cause the same event in different ways. And so concurrence uh, is a way of getting at this, is to say that God does not cause events from outside of the creation as if He were manipulating us like puppets on a string. Rather, God is in His creation, acting in His creation, working in His creation as the ultimate cause of everything, working in each aspect of His creation according to its nature, but the creatures themselves, the different aspects of His creation, have a real kind of secondary power of causality as well. And so there's a concurrence. God causes an event, and, and, and the event is caused by some something within the creation as well at the same time, though perhaps in different ways. Scripture again and again asserts this. Man is a free and responsible creature accountable to God for his actions and God foreordains all that comes to pass, including the free choices of men. And so no, we're not puppets on a string with God manipulating us. We are characters in God's story. And no, we can't fully explain how all this works, how God's sovereignty and human responsibility fit together. There's all kinds of mystery here. And in fact, that's what I think is so interesting when Paul comes to the end of his discussion of God's sovereignty in salvation and in history in Romans 11. This is what he says. He recognizes he has not answered every question, that there is still mystery here. And so this is what he exclaims. This is what he cries out at the end of it. He says, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. There's no way we can fathom all that God does. This is what Martin Luther says about it. 
If God's justice were such as He could be judged just by human reckoning, it clearly would not be divine. It would in no way differ from human justice, but inasmuch as He is the one true God, wholly incomprehensible and inaccessible to man's understanding, it is reasonable, indeed inevitable, that His justice should be incomprehensible. Luther goes on to say His judgments are unsearchable, If we could search them out, they wouldn't be unsearchable, but they are unsearchable. He says, what is man compared to God? No, we don't have answers to every question. We don't deserve answers. We can't demand answers. We live with mystery. We humble ourselves before this truth. We recognize God is God and we are not. God's story for our lives often includes hard things, great evils, great trials. But we trust all of these events are part of a beautiful story God is telling. Think about The Hobbit. The Hobbit is such a wonderful book. But think about all the evil things that happen in it. That Tolkien caused as the author of the story. He caused the War of Five Armies, which caused a great loss of life and property, including the death of, uh, of the dwarf Thorn Oakenshield. Tolkien caused, Tolkien created Smog the Dragon and caused Smog to destroy the city of Lake Town. Now, it would be wrong to say that Tolkien is guilty of these things and to press charges against Tolkien for destroying the city of Lake Town or for murdering Thorin Oakenshield, even though he wrote those things into his story. But here's the thing. Those different dark threads are woven together into a beautiful tapestry. Tolkien has a good reason for the bad things he includes in the story. And so it is with God. We may not always know what that reason is. But God has a good reason for the evil He includes in the story He has written. He's not the author of evil, but He uses evil for good in His story. God doesn't always tell us what those reasons are for including evil. Deuteronomy 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but He has reasons. We trust that His reasons are good. Calvin quotes Augustine on this, saying this, what Augustine says. This is tricky, but it's really good. By an inexplicable manner of operation, that is not done without the will of God, which is in itself even contrary to His will. Because without His will, it could not have been done at all. And yet God wills, not unwillingly, but willingly. For for as the God of goodness, He would not suffer evil to be done at all unless as the God of omnipotence He could bring out of that evil good. See, as the God of goodness, He would not include evil in His story unless as the God of omnipotence He could bring good out of that evil. He brings light out of the darkness. He brings good out of evil. He uses evil for good. God is the author of the world's story. The world is His story. We are characters in His story. And yes, some of the characters in the story are bad characters. But G.K. Chesterton said you can't tell a good story without some bad characters. This doesn't make God evil. We just have to know God has a good purpose, and design in everything He does. So quickly then, what are some things this might mean for us? I've already hinted at how this truth can impact our day-to-day lives, but let me point you a few other directions. Calvin says this doctrine of predestination or this teaching on God's sovereignty produces the most delightful 
benefits. It is a joy to know these things are true. Calvin says there is nothing more useful than this doctrine. He says, this is a great line, he says, the doctrine of God's providence makes one thankful in prosperity, patient in adversity, and gives us a wonderful security about the future. This teaching is important because it assures us of the graciousness of our salvation. This is what the Reformers meant by grace alone. Sola gratia. This is what they meant. Grace alone means predestination. It means God is sovereign in salvation. It means we make no independent contribution to our salvation because there's no independent anything in God's universe. The Reformers anchored their teaching on salvation in this truth of God's gracious and unconditional election of a people in Christ. But this didn't drive them to despair as if the question, well, how can I know I'm elect? That's a question that sometimes is tortured souls, but there's no need for that. The Reformers said, look, you're elect not in yourself. You are elect in Christ. And you can know you're elect not because you can have access to God's secret decree. God's decree remains secret. But we can know we are elect by looking to Christ who is the elect one. In union with Him, we are elect. And so if you're baptized into Christ and if you trust Christ, you can be sure that you are elect in Christ. Calvin called Christ the mirror of election. When we look at Christ, we see our own election staring back at us. But see, at the same time, this truth that assures us and gives us confidence of our salvation also humbles us. It keeps us humble. It puts us in our place and it puts God in His place. It it cuts out from under us any self-righteousness or self-dependence because again, it reminds us that our whole salvation from beginning to end is God's work. It's God's doing. We were chosen by the Father in the Son from before the foundation of the world. We were purchased by the Son when He offered His sacrificial blood to the Father on the cross, laying down His life for His sheep, for His bride. And we are brought to faith and repentance and enabled to persevere when the Spirit of the Father is poured out upon us through the Son in an act of irresistible grace. It is humbling to know our utter dependence upon God's grace for our salvation. That every stitch in the garment of salvation is sewn by God. And of course, it gives us great confidence in the things God has called us to do. It makes us bold in prayer and in evangelism. This teaching, rightly understood, does not make us lazy. It does not mean we resign ourselves passively to whatever happens. That would be fatalism, not Calvinism. Calvinism, following Scripture, teaches that God ordains the ends and the means to those ends. And so if God has ordained for you to have your daily bread, He's probably ordained for you to work each day as well to earn it. If God has ordained for you to have faithful children, He's probably ordained for you to do a lot of discipline and a lot of instruction with your kids along the way. If God has ordained for you to receive certain blessings, He's probably ordained for you to pray for them. Those who ask are the ones who receive. If God has ordained the salvation of the nations, then He has ordained that we preach the Gospel to every creature, that we send missionaries to the ends of the earth. And so let's go do it. We know that God will make it happen as we do. The flip side of this is that if God were not sovereign, there'd be no reason to think He could answer our prayers or keep His promises about saving the nations. Think about it. If you're getting in your car to go down to the beach on vacation and you pray for safety 
as you pull out of the driveway. What are you praying for? Your prayer only makes sense if God in some way oversees and controls all the other cars on the interstate. Otherwise, why pray? That prayer only makes sense if God has power and controls every other car and every other thing that might happen along the way, every other thing you might encounter. And see, finally, I think this truth gives us great hope. To know God is to know the One who writes our personal stories. Indeed, it's to know the One who has written the story of the world. And to know this God, to know He's the author of our story, fills us with peace and joy no matter our circumstances. It makes us fearless. There's a 19th century, I'm sorry, 17th century diary entry uh, from a uh, soldier who says he'd rather face a thousand Turks than one Calvinist who believes he's doing the will of God. <laughs> because that one Calvinist who thinks he's doing God's will becomes an unstoppable force. He knows God is with him. In a way, we could say God has given us in His Word a sneak preview of how the story is going to end. We know that this story has a happy ending. A happy ending is coming. We know glory awaits. And so we can persevere in the present no matter what obstacles or trials or difficulties God has written into our stories, whatever dark threads He's woven into the tapestry, we know that God will work it all out for our good and for His ultimate glory in the end. Because God is sovereign, He is happy. And because God is sovereign and happy, He can guarantee to us a happy ending as well. This is the promise of God's sovereignty. It's the guarantee of a happy ending. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You that You are a sovereign God, that You have revealed Yourself through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank You for working all things together for our good. We thank You for manifesting Your glory that we can share in Your glory. Father, we give You thanks and praise for who You are and all You do. For You are a good and omnipotent God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.